Hello there and thanks for listening to RT Radio 1's Davis Now Lectures podcast with me, Cleon and Ian Lewin. In this episode, we'll hear a talk from the Thomas Davis Lectures Archive of 1982, the centenary year of the birth of James Joyce. Morris Craig's Dublin, 1660 to 1860, a social and architectural history, is a landmark book about Dublin, first published in 1952, exactly 30 years after the publication of Ulysses and 30 years before this series was first broadcast in 1982. Regarding James Joyce, Morris Craig notes that neither early nor later did James Joyce show much interest in noticing buildings, however magnificent. And though there are allusions in his books to things seen, the main channel through which experience reached Joyce was through the ear. In a curious way, Craig says, nature seems to have equipped Joyce in advance to endure the purgatorially recurrent eye trouble which brought him, at the end, almost to blindness. That Morris Craig says of his own writing on architecture, that it was portraiture rather than history, echoes in its way with Joyce's own portrait of the artist as a young man. Here is Morris Craig. James Augustin Joyce was born, as a good many people now realise, on the 2nd of February 1882 at number 41 Brighton Square, Rathgar, Dublin. He himself believed that he shared this birthday with James Stevens, which was, it seems, not the case, and he was unaware of sharing it with the violinists Fritz Chrysler, who was older, and Yasha Heifetz, who was younger. If these had been singers instead of violinists, he would probably have known about it, because music, and especially song, played a great part in the household in which James Joyce grew up, and in the household which he himself formed in later life. And all his life he attached a quite superstitious importance to numbers and coincidences. His family came, immediately speaking, from Cork, and his father was, at the time of his son's birth, a rate collector working in Dublin. James was the eldest son and the first surviving child. When he was nine, his father was pensioned off and began to sink inexorably down the social scale. The Joyces were constantly on the move, flitting from house to house at increasingly frequent intervals. After a few years in Castlewood Avenue Rathmines, they settled at Martello Terrace on the seafront at Bray. From here, James was sent at the very tender age of six to Clongoeswood College in County Kildare, where he was on the whole happy. Among other things, he picked up a rather un-Irish taste for cricket, in which his younger friend and follower, Samuel Beckett, was later to resemble him. Joyce was only nine and a half when his father lost his job and withdrew the boy from Clongo's because he could not pay the fees. In October of that year, 1891, Charles Stuart Parnell died, and at Christmas took place that famous dinner party which is perhaps among the four or five best-known scenes in the whole of Joyce's work. His father's grief for Parnell was no doubt heartfelt and genuine, and it may well have been sharpened by the suspicion that his loyalty to the chief had cost him his job. During the next two years, the family lived in four different addresses, of which the most significant is perhaps 29 Hardwick Street, which is very close to Eccles Street, in which Joyce was later to fix the abode of his most famous character, Mr Bloom, and close also to Belvedere College, which plays such a large part in the portrait of the artist as a young man. Hardwick Street was succeeded by six more addresses, all in the same general area of north-east Dublin, 
and the last four of them all in or near Fairview. Most Dublin people are either Northsiders or Southsiders, and in Joyce's day, as in our own, most of the money was concentrated on the South Side, and with it most of the social prestige. Northsiders have their own pride, and on the literary side they have plenty to be proud of, even if they can only claim half a share in Joyce himself. But it is incontestable that when Joyce involuntarily became a Northsider, he, and still more his father, thought it was a step down in the world. John Joyce was very reluctant to send his son to the Christian Brothers in North Richmond Street, and James was snob enough to suppress all mention of this interlude, not having the benefit of hindsight, which might have told him that a Christian Brothers education could be a rung on the ladder of eminence. So, back at the age of a little over eleven, he went to the Jesuits again, but this time as a day boy to Belvedere College in Denmark Street, at the head of North Great George's Street a magnificent house dating from the late 18th century. Round the corner was another magnificent building, the Jesuit Church of St Francis Xavier, which also played a large part in Joyce's experience as an adolescent. But neither now nor later did he show much sign of noticing buildings, however magnificent. Though there are allusions in his books to things seen, the main channel through which experience reached him was the ear. In a curious way, nature seems to have equipped him in advance to endure the purgatorially recurrent eye trouble which brought him in the end almost to blindness. He was such a bright pupil that the Jesuits consented to educate him at Belvedere without any fees, and in this respect at least their trust in him was not misplaced. He did very well in the intermediate exams. By the age of fifteen he was reading Meredith, Hardy and Ibsen, and spending some of his spare time with the talented Sheehy family who lived at Number 2 Belvedere Place, and where the sons and daughters of David Sheehy, the Nationalist MP, made their own enjoyment with songs and literary parlour games and charades and amateur theatricals. At this time the Joyces were living in 17 North Richmond Street, just across the North Circular Road. Inevitably, perhaps, Joyce's priestly teachers asked him to consider whether he too might have a vacation, and, perhaps inevitably also, the rival teaching order, the Dominicans, approached his father and tried to lure him away with an offer of free board, room and tuition. But Joyce, to whom his father put the choice, refused either to join the Jesuits or to leave them for the Dominicans, and remained grateful for his education throughout his life. At sixteen and a half, which even in those days was very young, he entered University College, at that time occupying three houses on the south side of St Stephen's Green. Again, there is very little sign that the grandeurs of numbers 86 and 85 affected him. But the liberation of adult status, even in such cramped quarters as the college then enjoyed, affected him very much. The friendships which he then made, with J.F. Byrne and C.P. Curtin, were among the most enduring of his life. The college was not, of course, residential, so twice a day, Joyce must have walked right across central Dublin from Richmond Street, or later from Fairview, to St Stephen's Green. Since the college had no library to speak of, he and his fellow students spent a great deal of their time in and around the National Library in Kildare Street, and every reader of the portrait or of Ulysses will recall the memorable scenes in that setting. His strictly geographical experience was at this time still rather limited. At twelve he had been taken by his father to Cork and to Glasgow. 
and at 18, on the proceeds of an article he had written on Ibsen, he took his father on a trip to London. Later in the same year, he and his father went to Malingar, but his mental horizons were already very much wider. He was learning French and Italian rather more seriously than most Irish boys learn languages, and his interest in Ibsen had prompted him to teach himself Dano-Norwegian. He spent his time in Mullingar translating Gerhard Hauptmann from the German. He left University College in June 1902 with a past degree at which some people have poked fun in later years. Like other men of genius, he worked hardest at things which were not on the timetable. And like some other great writers, he thought first of becoming a doctor and enrolled at the Cecilia Street Medical School. He made his first contacts with A.E. and Yeats, the encounter, as Professor Elman calls it, of the landless landlord and the shiftless tenant. Yeats was at this time 37 and Joyce was 20. In December, he suddenly decided to study medicine in Paris rather than in Dublin. He stayed there less than three weeks and was home in time for Christmas in Fibsborough. But he had dipped one timid toe in the pool in which he was destined to swim for the rest of his life. And in less than a month, he was back in Paris again, staying in the same small hotel this time for six weeks. He saw a good deal of Singh, who was also in Paris, and he tried, not very successfully, to support himself by writing. He was miserably poor. Both Lady Gregory and Yeats were generous with their help, and Yeats got up to meet him off the Irish Mail at six o'clock in the morning on his way through London to Paris. Admittedly, Yeats lived very near to Euston Station, but it's still an impressive effort. To the end of Yeats's life, with admittedly a few ups and downs, Joyce had an admiring respect for him. He returned to Dublin, not exactly with his tail between his legs, but hardly carrying it so high as he had done and would again do. His mother was now dying, and all in all, the next 18 months were a miserable time for him. She died in August 1904 at the age of only 44. Joyce took to drinking rather heavily in apparent aimlessness. But in reality, this period was the turning point of his whole life. He had met Oliver Gogarty late in 1902, and the two were to become close enemies. The magical date of June the 16th, 1904, which we now call Bloomsday, comes right in the middle of those uneasy months. And in September, among the many casual places in which he stayed during that summer, he did, for six whole days, share the Martello Tower at Sandy Cove with Oliver Gogarty and Dermot Trench. Down to and including the publication of Ulysses in 1921, all his work was autobiographical distillation of the experiences of a few years only. He had already begun to sketch out the book at first called Stephen Hero, but later remodelled as a portrait of the artist as a young man, and had already written some of the stories later gathered into Dubliners. But more important for his personal life than even any of these was his meeting on June the 10th of this year that's six days before Bloomsday, with Nora Barnacle, whom he courted very pressingly indeed, and with success. He had also a short-lived job teaching in a short-lived boys' private school in Dorking. On the 8th of October, he and Nora left Ireland for the continent. This time it was no mere exploratory trip. It was for good. By a curious freak of fate, he went in rapid succession to the three cities which, after Dublin, were to play by far the largest part in his life. Paris, Zurich and Trieste. He went, in fact, a little further on than Trieste, to Pola. 
But that was a false start, and after about three months he returned to Trieste, where for the next 11 years he made his home, or to be more precise, a succession of homes, and where his children were very soon born, Giorgio in 1905 and Lucia in 1907. His brother Stanislaus followed him there in 1905 and made his home there, and two of their sisters also a little later and for shorter periods. Pola is nowadays called Pula and is in Yugoslavia. Trieste is nowadays in Italy. But at the time we are talking about, they were both in the dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary, the Empire of the Habsburgs. Italian and German were constantly heard in the streets and shops, and so were Serbo-Croat, and no doubt Magyar as well, and probably a good many other languages. Since the establishment of the nation-states after the First World War, there are very few places like that left anymore. Until a few years ago, Alexandria had no doubt some of the same cosmopolitan quality, and perhaps still very recently, Beirut. Joyce's brother Stanislas was so much an Italian sympathiser that when the war broke out, he was interned by the Austrian authorities. James himself prudently withdrew to Zurich, which is in neutral Switzerland. Soon after arriving in Trieste, Joyce wrote to his aunt, I hate this Catholic country with its hundred races and thousand languages governed by a parliament which can transact no business, and so on. But it is characteristic of the human race not to know when they are well off, and to recognise happiness only in retrospect. Both Joyce and Nora became fluent not only in Italian but also in the peculiar dialect of Trieste. He made several fast friends there, notably the Italian-Jewish businessman who wrote novels under the name of Italo Svevo. And to live in such a polyglot environment was surely an admirable preparation for the future author of Finnegan's Wake. After the end of the war, Joyce came back to Trieste, apparently with the intention of settling there again. But it had changed. It had got its freedom. The Austrians had gone, and so had their warships, and most of the colour. It was no longer so much to his taste. And though even then he was still thinking of coming back to Dublin for at least two or three months at a time, we made out whether the somewhat sombre Dublin of the new free state would have been as congenial to him as the Dublin of 1904, with all its conflict and, in retrospect, its colour. If we are apt to be a little too solemn in our view, Joyce, let us remember that one day in 1908 he was invited aboard a visiting British battleship, off which some hours later he was carried speechlessly drunk. I have run a little ahead of strict narrative order in anticipating his post-war reactions. We know, of course, that he left Dublin in 1904 and, apart from two short visits in 1909 and one in 1912, never came back again. But he himself cannot have known this for certain, and even in 1920, when he had already become a confirmed continental resident, he seriously considered coming to Dublin in order to write the Circe Nighttown episode of Ulysses. And he had as well the constant intention of coming back to see his father, of whom he was very fond, and who did not die till 1931. The most notable of his Dublin exertions was from October to December 1909, when he came as the agent of a group of Triestine businessmen and opened the Volta Cinema in Mary Street in Dublin, the first cinema in Ireland, as well as prospecting with the same purpose in Belfast and in Cork. The venture did not prosper, and the Volta was soon sold to an English syndicate, but the little cinema survived until about 40 years ago. At the same time, Joyce sought to set himself up as an agent for Irish tweeds in Trieste. 
and among the other incongruous things he tried at about this time was to become a correspondence clerk in a bank in Rome, a job which he held very unhappily for about seven months. Most of his 1912 Dublin visit was taken up with wrangling with Monsell and Roberts, the Dublin publishers, about the publication of Dubliners. It did not come out finally, and not with the Dublin firm, until June 1914. Portrait of the Artist was at the same time coming out serially in a minority magazine called The Egoist, and did not appear as a separate book till 1917. Joyce's writings were not at this time, nor indeed till much later, directly profitable to him. His originality of approach led to censorship problems and to such absurdities as the opinion of Edward Garnett, perhaps the most famous of all publishers' readers, that the portrait, and I quote, wants time and trouble spent on it to make it a more finished piece of work. Joyce was earning his daily bread and supporting his family by giving language lessons and writing only in the time left over from this. But in about 1917, when he was 35, his circumstances changed. The first of his fairy godmothers made her appearance, a Mrs. Harold McCormack, born Rockefeller, who lived in Zurich and endowed him for over a year with a thousand francs a month. Soon after this stopped, Miss Harriet Weaver, who had been interested in his work for some time, gave him an unconditional income which effectively put him beyond the reach of serious want for the rest of his life. And so, from the age of 37 onwards, the author of Ulysses, which was already by now mostly written, was liberated from the condition of economic man. Among those who had done most to help him was the American poet Ezra Pound. Pound now persuaded Joyce that the best place for him to live would be Paris, and there, in July 1920, the family duly arrived. Readers of Ulysses will remember that after the end of Molly Bloom's monologue come the words Trieste, Zurich, Paris, and the dates 1914 to 1921. As far as I know, however, nobody has drawn attention to the fact that Trieste, Zurich and Paris lie on a straight line on the map and that Zurich is exactly halfway along that line. It's of no importance, of course, yet I think that Joyce would have thought it interesting and might have reflected wryly that that line, if prolonged, would have missed not only Dublin but Ireland also, passing well to the south of Cape Clear. Like the portrait of the artist, Ulysses also came out in instalments, this time in a periodical called The Little Review, run by two American women, Margaret Anderson and Jane Hemp. Not only is it a much longer book than the portrait, it is much more innovative in its methods, and in a very limited number of places, making up a rather small percentage of the whole, it is more outspoken than published literature in the English language had been for something like 200 years and there were constant troubles with printers and customs officials, whom an old British statute has set over us as guardians of our morals, and the book acquired a notoriety in circles not normally noted for an interest in literature. Fourteen of the eighteen chapters were published in this way. When it came to publication in book form, another of Joyce's fairy godmothers came to the rescue. Sylvia Beach an American who kept a bookshop near the Luxembourg under the splendid name of Shakespeare and Co., undertook to publish this massive book, and on Joyce's 40th birthday, the 2nd of February 1922, it finally appeared, printed in Dijon and issued, like most French books, in paperback in spite of its size and weight. Ironically, though Ulysses was for many years banned both in England and in the United States, 
and though Dubliners and the portrait of the artist ran into this kind of difficulty, not one of these three books was ever formally banned by the Irish Censorship Board. That does not, however, mean that they were easy to come by in Ireland, far otherwise, until the liberalisation of recent years. He had spent seven years on the making of Ulysses. Less than a year later, he had started on Finnegan's Wake, which was to occupy him for the next 16, his last, longest, and without any doubt, his most difficult book. He was now a celebrity and should have been able to navigate in calmer waters. But when fate gives with one hand, she all too often takes away with the other. Back in 1907, when he was 25, he had been in hospital in Trieste with rheumatic fever, and the first occurrence of his eye trouble had come less than a year later. Ten years later, he had an attack of glaucoma, and from now on to the end of his life, he was seldom free from pain, near blindness and anxiety. Worse still, if that were possible, his daughter Lucia began in 1932 to show signs of incurable schizophrenia and Joyce spent endless time, effort and money tirelessly seeking a cure for her. She even came briefly to Ireland in 1935 and his faithful friends Constantine and Helen Curran did their best for her. Nonetheless, though based in Paris, he was able from time to time to make excursions to London, to Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Munich, London again and Copenhagen, not to mention various watering places and recurrently Zurich. For his new book, which was to do for the world of night and dream what Ulysses had done for the conscious life of the day, he had to elaborate a new language and get it onto paper and ultimately into print, a hard enough task for a normally sighted man but for one in his position calling for a truly heroic tenacity of purpose, especially as his patron, Harriet Weaver, was among the many who did not understand what he was at. But he had faithful helpers, such as Paul Leon, Maria and Eugene Jolas, and Samuel Beckett. Like the two previous books, it came out in small doses, in small magazines, notably in Transition, which was edited by the Jolasses. For 16 years, its very title was known only to Joyce himself and to Nora, who was sworn to secrecy. But in the summer of 1938, Eugene Jollis guessed it. In the following January, it was finished, and in May, it was published. Four months later, the Second World War broke out, just as the first had broken out less than two months after the publication of Dubliners. With the sublime self-absorption of genius, Joyce saw both these terrible events as almost directly aimed at him and at the frustration of his purposes. And indeed, he did not long survive the second. On Christmas Eve 1939, he left Paris for the last time for a place near Vichy in central France and remained in that area throughout 1940. In December, the family crossed into Switzerland, arriving on the 17th of the month in Zurich. On the 10th of January... He was taken acutely ill and removed to hospital, where on the 13th, less than three weeks short of his 59th birthday, he died. He was buried in Zurich, and there also, ten years later, his wife Nora was buried beside him. That was Irish architectural historian Morris Craig from the 1982 Thomas Davis Lecture Series, marking the centenary of James Joyce's birth. Look out for more talks from this series on Joyce and subscribe to the Davis Now Lectures for talks on a host of subjects where you get your podcasts. The Davis Now Lectures website is rt.ie 
forward slash radio one forward slash Davis Now Lectures. For me, producer Cleanan Eanlun, thank you for listening. Thank you.